0: Open up your Bibles to Romans, the ninth chapter. We're going to look at part of Paul's life that every believer should mimic. Romans 9, verse 2. He said this, that I have a great sorrow. Now, he wasn't depressed, but he said, I have great sorrow and we know that we read things where he lived his life with joy. And he finished his course with joy. But deep down, he had an underlying sorrow that he lived with his whole life. And look at this. He said, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brother and for my countrymen, according to the flesh. He basically said this. If it would help for me to go to hell, that my countrymen could be saved, I'll do it. And he knew what heaven was about. He had seen Jesus. Jesus had appeared to him when he was lost, doing his own religious thing. So to say, hey, I'd be willing to be separated from the Lord so that the countrymen, the people that are not receiving him, they would go to heaven If it meant me going to hell, I would pay that ultimate price for their salvation. But at the same time, he did know that wouldn't do it. But he said continually, he's thinking, I would pay any price with my own personal life if it would mean other people being saved and going to heaven. That's huge love. He was so driven, he was willing to go to hell, be cut off, accursed. Literally means, you know, when we say that term, you know, it's anathema maranatha, or, you know, the Lord's coming again, but anathema, cut off at the Lord's coming. And I'd be willing to do that if I could get other people saved. You think about it. He's basically saying, I would spend eternity in hell if it would help others not to go there. Now, the Lord doesn't require that of us, but he was so moved. He's like, man, I need to see people saved. So turn to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. We're going to read a couple of verses here. But look at what Paul said about reaching the lost and the sacrifices he personally made. Now, somebody said, well, Jesus made all the sacrifices there need to be made for people to be saved. That is true in one sense, but not true in another sense. Meaning this, ultimately, for people to be saved, Jesus has paid for it. But do you know there really is a price we have to pay in order to get people saved? And sometimes it means tweaking our own likes and wants and desires and adjusting ourselves for the sake of others. And so we're going to look at what Paul did in this area. So 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to begin reading in verse um, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win the more. He said, I'm free, but what I'm doing with my own life, notice he made a personal sacrifice. He said, I didn't have to do this, but in order to win them, he said, I became the servant of all that I want might win more. So maybe he was winning some, but he said, I'm going to make a personal adjustment so I can win more. And he said to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. So in other words, these covenant people, he said, I adjusted my approach when I was around them so I could win them. He said, to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, being, notice this phrase, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save or literally win some. Verse 23, now this I do. For the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. In other words, it's not just about me partaking of the power of the gospel, he said. And it's not just about me experiencing the greatness of God and his power and his goodness and his internal inheritance. He said, I make personal adjustments when I'm around different people. and, And I change my life. But he didn't say I become lawless in the sense I live wild. Because he said there's still a law governing me because I live before the Lord. But it's interesting he did this. I remember a little while back somebody asked me about witnessing to people and leading people to the Lord. Because I had prayed with these two people in this parking lot. And they said, do you do that all the time? I said, I probably would do it more if my head was up. You know, you ever been in a hurry and your head's down and you just kind of run and do stuff, and then you don't look at the people that are around you and you just kind of get in a rush? Paul had his eyes up and looking at the people around, realizing there is a world out there, there is a bunch of people out there, and according to Jesus' words, more people out there in need of a Savior than that have a Savior. And so Paul was aware when he got around people that I need to adjust my life or my approach to people just so I could win them to the Lord. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation because it it says it a little bit different. He said, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave, notice this, to all people to bring many to Christ. God's goal is not just to bring a few, but many. He died for the whole world. He said, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew. He didn't say he lived as one, but he lived like one. To bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I lived under the law. Even though I am not subject to the law, or you could say the penalty of the law, because Christ had paid that for him, because he had received him. He said, I did this so I could bring to, uh, to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law, so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So in other words, he's saying, you can't use this as an excuse to live Like everybody. Well, you know, I'm going to hang around with those dope smokers, you know, those guys smoking pot, you know. Got to become all things to all men. I'll roll that. I'll smoke that. No, we still have a law toward the Lord. We still are conscious that we live unto Him. Maybe we don't condemn them for what they do, but we bring them in to a relationship. It says, it goes on to say, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. In other words, he had compassion on them. He didn't just say, hey, get strong. He helped them along. He said, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try. Notice this phrase. I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. Notice that phrase, I try to find common ground. I'll tell you what, if you want to win people to the Lord, sometimes you just need to find common ground. So we live in a world where politics are huge. So the first thing you should do when you're witnessing to people is tell them you follow Trump. All right? Or tell them you follow Obama and you yearn for the good old days. That, that's what you need to do. Those, those two phrases, take one or the other. That's sarcasm 101. Don't do that. Because then it's going to be a battle of who, who, who should be and who is right and who is wrong. It's got nothing to do with their eternal salvation. None. None. Now, you may have personal beliefs, and most people do, uh, and they should be influenced by the gospel truth concerning what we believe politically, but that being said, we can cause divisions that would close people out from hearing us, so it's good just not to bring some things up when you're trying to talk to people about the Lord. It's the truth. I know this, and this is just me. I can go to a restaurant and eat if it has good food and the place is pretty dirty. I can. doesn't bother me one bit. I mean, I'll just go and eat. And if the food is really good, but I know this, even if they have great food, I might be able to cross that line and just go eat. But I know there's other people that won't cross that line. They're like, I will not eat there. I'm not going into that place. And I'm like, no, no, no. The food is good. The food is good. The food is good. But it's super messy because their line for going there is a little bit different. You know what the restaurant, the restaurant can say, I have the best food. I have the right food. It is the ultimate. And they could totally be right but they need to find common ground with the people who don't want the dirty restaurant if they want them to eat their good food and how many people in this room have heard the truth heard the truth know the truth and but maybe the way we present it to people would could be adjusted a little bit so that they would come in we're not trying to tweak the truth but if those restaurant owners that have super dirty restaurants would clean it up, people might go, oh, it's clean. I'll go in there and give it a shot. And they'll go, that is the best food I ever had in my life. What if we're aware of the people we're reaching, the people we're talking to, and really recognize that maybe we should find some common ground, not just the gospel, but our, maybe our approach, You know, I had heard this story years ago about a missionary who was in South America in the 1950s, and he had started a church, and the church was just not going forward. It wasn't real successful, and he'd been going after it, and going after it, and going after it, and they weren't gaining really ground. One day, as he was walking along, you know, and in Central America or South America, and this was South America, there's a huge Catholic influence. And the majority of people were Roman Catholic and he was going by this Catholic church and they were playing this song and it was playing and playing and playing and he's trying to win the people with little results. And so he heard this song and started listening to it and going, wow, the words to that song are actually really good talking about the Lord and what he did and what he bought and paid for. But it was a song that all the Catholics knew in South America, or in that area at least. And uh, so he got the idea, I'm going to take that song and I'm going to play it first in my church. It's going to be the first song we sing every single week. It was scriptural. It was just one they sang. He looked for common ground. And so he started playing this song, first thing, and here's what he did. He made sure that all the doors and windows were open so that everybody around got to hear this song. So as people were walking by, coming and going, they started inquiring, are you guys a Roman Catholic church? He said, we're Catholic, we're just not Roman Catholic. Somebody said, oh, you're deceiving him. No, because Catholic means universal or general church. So he said, we're not, we're not, because they are, we're general church. So we're Catholic, if you want to look at it from that standpoint. And so people just started coming. So he knew they needed to receive Christ, but he didn't want to tell them, uh, you don't have Jesus, especially after knowing they had been hearing all this stuff and he tried to find common ground. So he would start preaching from Acts, the first chapter, where Mary went to the upper room and received the Holy Spirit with the gift of speaking, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And he would preach regularly, follow Mary to the upper room and receive the Holy Spirit as she did. So they literally started getting people who wanted to follow Mary to the upper room and get filled with the Holy Spirit. But he said, I didn't want to tell them that they needed to get saved first. So all I did was tell the people, let's tack a little salvation prayer on the beginning because they already believed in Jesus. And we'll just pray for them to receive Jesus, make a declaration, and get filled with the Spirit. And in about a two-year period, they had over 100,000 people come to know the Lord from almost little or no results of People getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Over 100,000. He looked for common ground. He didn't compromise. And then now, I mean, you know, some people are like, well, I don't believe in that method. Well, either you get the five or ten or get 100,000. I don't think the Lord's going to get ticked off at 100,000 people. Hey, what are you coming in here to heaven for? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I died for you. And if you think I'm making this kind of stuff up, let's look at Paul and see what he did. Turn to Acts 17. This may bother some people, what I'm about to say. You know, I met a guy the other day and was talking to him. He was from a a Muslim country. And uh, I was talking to him, and he had had an experience with the religions of that area and everything. And I said, so do you believe in God? Are you of this sect of this, you know, belief or this? And he said, no. He said, I just believe in God. I just don't know his name. I said, well, if you believe he's distinct, then he has to have a distinct name. And he said, I agree with that because I said we were in this big store. I said he was an employee there. I said, because if somebody walked across the room and you saw him every day, you may not be familiar with their name. But if you were introduced to him, you could say, that's Sally or that's Bill. And I said, you know that there's a God out there. And so I started talking to him. I said, I know this about the God I serve. That anybody who's hungry, it doesn't matter if you're Hindu, doesn't matter if you're Muslim, doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're Sikh, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're hungry, God will send somebody across your path to introduce himself to you so you could know him personally. I didn't tell him he was bad. I didn't tell him you're going to hell. I wanted to find some common ground because I knew where he grew up. I said, the God I know, and he's real. He changed my whole life. His name is Jesus. And he said, "You want me to tell you something? Because he wouldn't tell me anything. Tell them. Because he came out of a, Iran. When he was a little kid, he said I was taken to this this church. I didn't know anything of it. And he said in the Muslim church that my whole family is Muslim. He said they wear all this stuff. He said they're not nice. They're mean. He said they will kill if you don't convert. And he, you know, di- said some different things. And he said, but I was a little boy and these neighbors." or kids in the neighborhood, said, let's go to this church. And they went. And he said, all the people were friendly and nice. And they said, we serve Jesus. It was a Christian church. And he said, ever since then, I remember, you know, what he sensed there, what he experienced there. He said, that has to be God. This cannot be him. He said, so I went home and said, mom, I'm going to go be a Christian. And they basically said, if you do, we'll disown you. You'll be out. So he never became a Christian. Now he's like in his late 40s, and uh, never gave his life to Jesus. I ran into him, started talking to him, and he said, oh, I do believe in Jesus. And then he told me his story. He said, I've believed in him since I was little. I just didn't know who he was, really. I said, I can introduce you to him. You can receive him right now. We prayed right there in the place. And he started crying. And he's a grown man. He said, someday I'll come to your church. Now, he's not here this morning, so I said that. Or, you know, when he comes, just go, oh, who are you? But the whole thing is, is finding common ground is important. And I didn't tell him, you're wrong, you know, he is wrong. He was, but I didn't have to just tell him. You with me? Notice this in Acts 17. Um, This is Paul, and we're going to read a couple of verses and skip through this, otherwise we'll end up reading 15 verses. Paul is here in verse 16, 17:16. 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens. Now we know Athens, right? If you watch the movies that are out at different times, you know, all those Greek gods and stuff like that. Paul ran into them. It said his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols they were following all these things he just he he said he was waiting and while he's waiting for his partners and his ministry friends to come he's observing and they're into all this idol worship he is so provoked within it says therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and and with the gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there then certain epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Notice these guys, they're philosophers, right? They encountered him and he started talking to them and he starts preaching to them about the resurrection of the Lord. Now, remember, they're philosophers of their time. They're people, you know, that are there and he's witnessing to them. Um, and it's interesting how he connects with these people. Notice verse 22. It said, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, Notice he never said idol worship is wrong. But is idol worship wrong? Totally. Totally. But he looked for common ground. Look what he found. He said, for I was passing through verse 23 and considering the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I'm going to proclaim to you. You don't know him. You got an idol. But I'm going to let you know. I know him. I'm going to tell you who he is right now. So he connected. He found common ground with them. And then he started preaching to them. And it's real interesting that as he goes on, he, he does something that probably would bother people. But you ready? Let's read verse 28. As he's preaching away, and he's talking about people seeking after the Lord and reaching out to find him, he said... Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Stop right there and look at me. Anybody ever heard a song like that? In him we live and move and have our being and all different kinds of versions, right? You know, that's scriptural, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where do you get that? Let's just read on. As also some of your poets, one translation said philosophers. Well, that. that What? That verse didn't come from the Bible? No, it came from a philosopher, a poet. And said, for we are all his offspring. So he quotes that. In him we live and move and have our being. He said he was correct in that. This unknown God, and he's trying to connect them to who he is. He's Jesus, manifest in the flesh. And then he goes on, and then he starts going after the idols. He said, therefore, since we are his offspring, the offspring of God, in other words, God created us, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, he said, you guys got all these things. I'm telling you the one you've been worshiping and didn't know He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who created us. He's the one that you've got to follow. And he said, even your poets say that. Man, he's finding common ground. What was he wanting? Just to live at quietness with them and not have arguments? No, Paul was thrown in prison. Paul was beaten. Paul was stoned. He was shipwrecked for the faith. There were times people said, don't go there. We know you're going to end up in jail. And he said, I don't care. I'll die for this faith. So he wasn't saying these things to compromise. He was saying things to get common ground to get them in. And so he didn't say anything against the truth. And then he starts saying, listen, you guys are all given over to these idol worship things. And he said, God who made everything, how can you follow something that you yourself shape with your own hands? You devise yourself. You've devised this, and then you worship it. I mean, that'd be like, you know, kids, when, when I was in school, you know, we did those clay projects, you know, and then they put it in a kiln, and they burn it and get it hot. And The majority of kids made cigarette or ashtrays. Now, I bet most of their parents didn't smoke, but it's pretty easy. Make a bowl and stick a couple of little things like this in it and take it home. That'd be like, you know, mine, I made an alligator, I was the only one, and the teachers weren't pleased. But it turned out good. I'm just saying. So if I bring that thing home, and I set it there, I made that thing. Now let's worship it. Let's worship it. He's saying, that's what's happening. You've made all these things, but God made everything. He's the creator. He's the one who gave us life. You made something, and you're worshiping it, but there's one who made you. You need to worship him. So he started straightening their thinking out, but he came to them with common ground. And what's interesting, he said in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, God permitted this. He understands. He, let it. he overlooked it. He knew the world was messed up, but he was working to get the world back, so he sent Jesus. He said this, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, which we know is Jesus. He has given assurance to us all or this day or to all of us by raising him from the dead. He said, this is the man. In other words, he found common ground and then drove right straight to the truth. He, he even reasoned with them why some of the things that they were holding to were not bringing them answers. Because if you make something and you make something up, it ain't going to fix you. No way. Not when God made everything and then you took the clay he made and made something and said, I worship you. Or made, took the gold he made, shaped it into something and said, I worship you. He said, listen, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Not anymore. We've got to be serious about this. You have to turn to him. And so he lays it out. But what I find interesting is the common ground he found. He looked. He found something. Could you find common ground with people who are religious and who are going wrong? What if somebody's reading a book that's false, and you know it to be false, but it's religious? Should you just say, that's wrong? Or maybe you should say, wow, you have a spiritual hunger, I see, by this. Oh, yeah. Is it wrong? Yeah. But how many times people get defensible when you come across that way, we know it's wrong. We know who the Lord is personally. Wouldn't it be better to say something like, hey, I see you have a spiritual hunger for things. I have had a spiritual hunger too, and I found the truth. It's been answered. Did, you know, because you already know. You don't have to tell them, because you know nobody's going to find the answer in the wrong thing. There's still a void. They're still hungering. Then when they find out who Jesus is, the truth will set them free, and they'll know this is garbage. They'll lay it aside. You know what's interesting? There was a time Paul was preaching in one place, and he just started preaching the truth and preaching the truth and preaching the truth. And he didn't tell them to get rid of certain things, but they were practicing witchcraft, curious arts. And as he just taught the Word, it said, and so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. It just got so strong in them That it said that the people came and they brought all their curious arts and all their witchcraft and laid it down at the apostles' feet. They gave no invitation for it. They didn't command repentance. They just taught the truth. And it said they came and they laid it down and they burned and it was like $30,000 worth of stuff. The truth is the truth and there's power inherent in the truth. We can rely on its ability to affect people. We don't have to compromise. You know, I mean, in all reality, we're going to do an Easter egg hunt. Is it because we believe in a bunny that lays eggs with chocolate in them? I would go to that church, but they got an Easter bunny out there hopping around laying eggs with chocolates in them and other little goodness things in those eggs, and we're, we're not taking our kids there. Hey, why do we have those? Just to get our kids candy? We can just give them bags of candy. But there is a world out there that's looking for someplace safe or something fun for their kids. And we'll let them do the Easter egg hunt and we'll give them a lot of candy, but they will also hear the gospel. People don't like that. I I don't have a Christmas tree, but if I was married, I'd have one. I'm not going to set it up for me and sing, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree. And then tear it down and put my gifts under there, open a gift to myself. I wonder what this is. Oh, wow. It's just exactly what I wanted. No, but at some time I will. I'm not opposed to a Christmas tree, but we'll put Christmas trees up on the platform. And there are some people who freak out. Well, that's idol worship. We're not idol worshiping. Oh, Christmas tree. If we start singing that song, you leave. Because <laughs> that we're not going to worship the tree. But we can find common ground because the world knows what Christmas trees are about. We're not worshiping idols. You with me? And somebody said, you know, well, I don't know about all these lights up here on the platform. Well, if you don't need them, fine. But some people in the world, it's okay for them. But we are still going to have the gospel with power. And we're not going to compromise that, but we can do stuff to appeal on common ground. You know, one thing is not preaching for 10 hours on Sunday. You said, yeah, but I'm spiritually hungry. But Jesus said he taught as people were able to hear. He knew that there was a certain amount of time that some people would be open. But you can find people who'd be willing to hear for 10 hours straight. Well, that's not who we're trying to win. They're already obviously won if they can go for 10 hours. Right? So we want to find common ground. That's why I don't, you know, say certain Christian words. You know, sometimes people go, to, go talk to people, you know, and they're going to witness to them. You know, the other day I had an unction, and I felt like I should talk to you about the gospel. You had a What? An unction. Is that like a stomach ache or what is that, you know? No, it's just an unction. It's an unction from the Holy One who abides in me. You you said what again? That's super biblical. It means that there is His power by His Spirit is teaching you something. But you communicate that to a lost person and they won't understand it. You know what I mean? If I speak Chinese or Japanese or, you know, Spanish or whatever language it is that I speak, if it's not English and they don't understand it, they're going to go, huh? But, you know, there's a Christian language like that too. So it's okay to translate our words into known language. Speak at people's level. Speak where people can understand.